Today's episode is brought to you by Kyle LaCroix and Sets Consulting. You might remember Kyle from episode 19. He's been a great resource and mentor for me over the past two years, helping me grow as a coach, but also figure out the business side of what I'm doing, which is a huge blind spot for me. Sets Consulting is a personalized service for all tennis coaches looking to take the next step in their career path, improve their on-court teaching abilities and management skills, and navigate the many challenges that pop up on a coach's radar throughout their careers, and there are many. Kyle is just one of 144 USPTA master professionals and has tested, certified, and mentored more than 1,400 teaching pros, so he has literally seen it all. By signing up to work with Kyle and Sets Consulting, you're receiving Kyle's mentorship in perpetuity for the rest of your career. I have never met a coach so passionate about improving other coaches, and to back that up, he's willing to give away $1,000 to any coach who is hungry enough to improve their career and sign up for this program. If you take your coaching career seriously and want to improve at your craft, you need to at least check out what Sets can do for you by visiting www.setsconsult.com or reaching out through Instagram to at sets underscore consulting. I'll be adding those links in the show notes, but it's been incredible how much Kyle has helped me through our many conversations over the past few years. So if you're a coach looking to master your craft, check out Kyle and Sets Consulting. Hey everyone, welcome to the 39th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today we welcome back Joel Myers to recap this year's French Open. We discuss what you can learn from champions Novak Djokovic and Iga Sviatek, when to drop shot or go behind someone on clay, and how to play better in the wind. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Joel, welcome back to the pod. Thanks for having me again, Jonathan. Let's start off with history. Novak obviously winning his 23rd, and it's well documented that I am a huge Rafa supporter, but even I can't make a really compelling case for anyone else except Novak as the GOAT of tennis. Why do you think it is that Novak isn't just maintaining his level at age 36, but he's borderline improving? I mean, it's got to be number one, how he takes care of his body. That has to be the standout. I mean, the way he plays at 36, I'm 36. And I can't imagine maintaining even the level that I was playing at once upon a time, let alone the demands on his body. To outlast Alcaraz in the semis, basically, um, you know, Alcaraz felt the nerves. He was the one cramping at 20 years old. And he's absolutely was playing hands down, I think, the best tennis up until that point. I think that's amazing. But... Also, best of five, Novak has that mental edge against everybody. You know, even when Alcaraz was one up in the head-to-head, it's still to beat Djokovic best of five. Even if he wins the first set, it's almost like the match starts again from scratch. But now Novak has more information about him and he has a feel. So it's very tough to beat the man. And he's just no weaknesses or holes in his game. And the very, very minor ones, he holds his nerve and hides them so well under pressure. All right, so I'm going to put you on the spot here, but whenever Novak does decide to retire, how many slams does he end up with? I think probably 26. I can imagine 26 being the number. I don't know how long he can keep going. I mean, if Alcaraz is able to manage his nerves and get over the fact that you know he's got to eventually beat someone like Djokovic, then he might be a bit more dangerous. you got the hard court 
coming up, you know, Medvedev is obviously going to be much better, stronger on the hard court. He really wasn't a factor at the French Open, which is, is sort of surprising after he had his best clay court season leading up to it. But yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting. I, I think he's definitely, the, obviously, the favorite for Wimbledon. I was surprised that people had Alcaraz still as the favorite for this tournament. I still picked Djokovic to win this from the start. I mean, how are you going to bet against this man at best of five? So that was that was interesting to me. I, think, I know the betting lines favored um, Alcaraz huge, but so if you put money on Djokovic, well done. That was the smart play. It's kind of funny. I saw a graphic when I was watching the final, and it was talking about how Novak had only made uh, he had made zero unforced errors in five tiebreakers. And so I wrote down a question and was like, "Hey, what makes him so great?" And then I went back and looked at our Australian Open recap, and we were talking about how great Novak was in breakers there. And he's incredible. He he locks it down. I, I've kind of been arguing with a coach that I work with, and that guy kind of you know says, "Hey, well, he gets to a breaker and he picks." bigger targets and he has this lockdown mode, but I was always kind of thinking, well, if I had that mode, why wouldn't I just use that to get up a break? Why would I wait until a very pressure filled situation? Like what, what are your thoughts on that? Why, why do you think he waits to a breaker and, and what is that lockdown lockdown mode all about? I think he's just so hypersensitive to pressure. I mean, at, at any moment, the, the, the pressure seems to just turn his button on. And everything lifts. I mean, you think about any chances players have against him on a break point, and it's a huge point. He's going to make a first serve to a great spot. You know, he's going to avoid the pressure that's going to come from a second serve attack. Or he just refuses to make errors, keeps the ball at a length or a location that makes it insanely hard for the opponent to gain an advantage. And when they press for that advantage, they lose. You know, they miss the ball. Casper um, Ruud was saying in the interview how hard it is to, to continually find small targets on Novak, he makes you feel like the court is shrinking. And I can only imagine that being multiplied in the tiebreaker when you know that these are such huge moments and you know how important it is for you to get that breaker. It means more to you than it does to him to win a breaker against Novak, unless it's the last set. So I think all of those pressure factors um, come in and he even notes, he says he loves it when, and he understands that players feel that pressure when they come up against him. And I think it just, it turns him on for the better. And I think it doesn't always turn all the other players on the same way. What would your advice then be for an amateur player who's looking to raise their level on a big point or play their best tennis on the important moments or important points of the match? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, in terms of tiebreakers specifically, you really should think of a tiebreaker like a set and each point is a game. And on your serve, you should be looking to hold and on your opponent's serve, you're trying to break. But by the same token, if you're down a few points, you know, that's not the end of the world. You might be still favored to hold your serve on two of those and you need one to break back to even. So you know that really out of it in tiebreaker, I think specifically in terms of tiebreakers, you really have to, you know, put a huge emphasis on playing more primary patterns. And especially early in the tiebreaker, if you can get off to a good start and put a bit of distance between you and your opponent, it frees you up to play a little bit more offensive keeps the pressure on them and then that can sort of compound into more errors or easier balls in your favor but definitely understanding the dynamic of every point counts um, and just to play smarter bigger targets more primary patterns on tiebreakers so just like me and everyone else out there i'm assuming you were really excited for the alcaraz Djokovic match and obviously the last two sets were a disappointment uh you know carlos physically had just broken down but the first two were excellent 
And one thing I noticed speaking about big points, so there are always moments in a match when you're watching and you're thinking it might get away from someone. And it was 1-4-15-30. Alcaraz was serving. And I'm thinking, oh God, like, you know, he better get this point or it's a double break to go down 5-1 and he can pretty much kiss the first set goodbye. And he goes kick serve wide serve and volley and puts away an easy volley. And he ends up winning that game. So now it's 2-4 and he wins the first point of no back service game. So now it's Novak serving 4-2, but love 15. And now Carlos has something cooking. So this is also a big point. Love 30 would be a big hole. And Novak goes kick serve in Bali and successfully wins that point. Then later on in the game, there was another break point for Carlos and then the last game point for Novak. And he went kick serve both times as a first serve. So what is your take on the kick serve as a first serve, especially on clay? This is such a good op- option, especially when you can predict that the opponent is going to play a safer return. You know, the ball is high. If it gets up out of, out wide and high out of the strike zone when they really can't get a good tag on it, then they're more likely to float it. So if you've decided and committed to serve and volley, you might have a chance at an easy knockoff volley. Or even staying back, you know, you might be able to take that shorter ball on the rise if they don't quite get good length on it. But it's such a high percentage serve. If you have a good kick serve, it's so easy to make that under pressure i feel like because the margins are there you use the height and the spin as a weapon rather than pace and location and you force the opponent to then come up with something really solid as opposed to the the point potentially or the shot potentially ending on your racket so it's a really good way to throw that in i think it just keeps players guessing too it takes away the deep middle return i think we both know that it's really important to take that target away from time to time and just keep the opponent guessing but on big points, that's you know some of the best times to use the serve and volley, just because you can predict that your opponent is looking to be much more passive. It's funny. I posted a serve and volley video a couple of days ago, and someone commented on it. You know, oh well, I would serve and volley too if you know someone was just floating me returns, and because in the video I kind of hit a slice and I floated it to the girl I was working with, and I was just kind of thinking like, who who do you play like? I don't know many people that are just constantly ripping returns. And, you know, if Alcaraz is standing behind the baseline and he's lifting balls for Novak to finish, I'm pretty sure the 3-5 and 4-0 players out there are also, you know, floating returns and giving opportunities. Yeah, if you do it all the time, the players for sure going to be looking to be aggressive and put you into a position where you're going to volley from under the net. But, you know, under pressure... Players are just trying to get the ball back, especially super high pressure, pressure situations, you know, maybe on the weak side, up high, high backhand, the kicker out wide. So, you know, the number one toughest thing to do in tennis is get back to neutral and return. And that's priority number one. And so mixing that in, and I, I agree with you, I don't think um, it's a good necessarily uh, strategy to do all the time to serve in volley because it can be very predictable. But doing it unpredictably is a huge weapon and it keeps you return a guessing it keeps them thinking about what you're going to do because if you start to serve and volley and have some success with that then they potentially have to drop the ball short or hit with more angle and if you decide not to come in then that's a, an easier approach shot or the plus one has more angle to hurt them with so you can play it off against you know the staying back or serving and volleying depending on what your opponent's doing i forgot to mention so the last two kick serves on the break point and the game point for novak Carlos missed both those returns. And so, you know, some people say you should take a little bit off your first serve on a big point and then players get hesitant because they think they're not going to get free points. And then here you have 
a generational talent like Alcaraz who can't even make a kick serve, kick serve return under pressure. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. Novak got to hit a pressure free first serve and actually got two free points out of it. And also, you know, at that level, they're not necessarily expecting a, a rolling kicker in as a first serve. And, you know, if they do see that coming, they assume maybe it's a, a mix-up player, secondary pattern, like a serving volley. Maybe he looks up and decides he needs to get more length because Novak's staying back and he misses it for that reason. But it's just surprise. It's just, it can't be monotony. Even when something is very successful, you can't use it to exhaustion. You have to pick and choose the time to do it. And smart players know how to mix things up. And that way it keeps their primary patterns, their go-to stuff more effective because it's not readable or it's not, you know, predictable over and over again. Yeah. I just, I want everyone out there to realize that if Carlos Alcaraz can miss a 95 mile an hour kick serve coming to him slowly on clay, then your average three, five or four Oh is definitely capable of dumping that same type of return in their league matches. Yes. Especially above the shoulder. Yeah. All right. So let's move to the women's side. Iga winning her third French. She's an incredible, she's an all-time player. But why do you think it is that early in her career in these big events, she's had way more success on clay than she has on the heart of the grass? Her movement is standout and she jumps all over second serves. Um, but, you know, that's the standout to me, her return game. I saw the statistic where I think she'd won 18 out of 22 return games. I mean, that was phenomenal. But if you look at how active she is um, between shots, how she's always looking to improve her core position, I just think her movement is standout and her intent to take advantage offensively as soon as possible and not maybe stay back and, and wait for her opportunity. She, she seems to really enjoy taking the, the attack to the opponent early. I think people hear about court position all the time, but what would your best advice or information be on how to improve your court position and get better in that area of your specific game? Well, number one, you have to be effective at pushing your opponent back. So you have to drop your opponent into negative core position. So the best way to do that is to hit it deep. And then you also have to see and, and read that the opponent's ball is going to be something that you can move up on. Um, but also, I think managing your positioning in the court when you see that. So if you drop back a few feet off the baseline to hit a defensive ball, take back one and a half feet between the time you've hit your last shot and when your opponent's hitting just to try and improve every little inch you can, you can scale back is going to be an easier next ball for you. And, and the closer you are to the net, the faster you're sending the ball back to your opponent anyway. And also as you improve that core positioning, you have to manage your take back. So the bigger the take back, the more time you need to get that shot off. So that's something that I think players struggle with always when they're trying to hold their position on the baseline. You'll see a lot of players go from clay to grass and really struggle because they struggle to manage the take back change because of the speed of the ball coming off the grass. So same thing with amateur tennis, the closer you get to net, a lot of times the shorter the backswing is going to be because you have less time. And that goes hand in hand with approaching as well. If you want to be effective being able to approach on a short fast ball, you need a shorter take back to be able to time that in your contact point. But I think probably the take back management um, is probably the biggest downfall of most amateurs who aren't great at holding their core position. You mentioned those returning stats for Iga, and they're just absolutely absurd. You know, whatever it was, 18 out of 22 games, she won returning. That's, that's bonkers. 
Um, what would your best advice be? You said she does a good job of attacking second serve returns. What are some fundamentals or principles that you teach for helping someone attack a weaker second serve? So something it doesn't necessarily happen at their level as much, but something that I see all the time at um, our tennis center here in Coronado is players letting the weak second serve drop below the level of the net and then trying to attack it. Once you let the ball drop below the level of the net, you basically have to avoid the net as an obstacle. So you have to lift it. You'll have to apply more spin to keep the ball in. And a lot of players don't have that spin to do that. So putting yourself automatically on a second serve in a position where you're going to be able to take the ball above the net, closer to your contact point or your ideal strike zone is so important. It's so underrated. Even with a big kick serve, massive kick serves, you're going to see players that stand in to make that ball more, more manageable. Even though it's going to be rising quickly, it's still going to end up in the strike zone at some point and they want to make sure they're there when it rises through that zone. So I think that is number one. Um, if you want to <clears throat> take a lot of risk, then you can consider um, pulling returns. I think we might have talked about this in the past where you hit the return across your body for safety. So if you hit that return late, you're still going to get it in. So by that, I, I would mean if I'm standing in the juice court and Jonathan hits a second serve down the tee to my backhand, then I would try and take my backhand as a righty to the ad side up the line. And if I hit that ball late, my ball might end up in the juice court. But if I were to take that backhand towards the juice court and hit it late, then I'd probably miss it wide. So pulling your returns means hitting across your body. That's a great way to be aggressive and give yourself the biggest margin. If you had already mentioned that before, it's okay because I say the same thing every single yep. day to my kids <laughs> and they're still they're still yep. trying to do yep. it. So if someone just heard this and they went, oh, you know, dang, I should have done that the first time. He mentioned that a couple months ago. So that's that's no big deal. I think second serves, obviously, you, you sort of think as a second serve as a green light, something that you want to attack. And there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can you know, rip it down the middle, catch the server coming out of their second serve. They have to defend, and the next ball is typically easier. Um, and then you can go for more direction. Or you can do something like I mentioned, like pulling the return and going for a little more direction right away. But you know, when you pull the return, you give yourself a, a good safety net to keep it in. Is there anything with Iga... I guess actually we can go back to Novak because we've been talking a lot in our groups lately about what diagonal are you best from? So are you better playing deuce to deuce or are you better playing ad to ad? And Novak is one of the best ad court players of all time. Is there anything you notice with Iga in terms of being stronger from the deuce or stronger in the ad? Is there anything you've picked up on there? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I think, I think she's probably ad side to ad side. I mean, she does so well getting into a position where yeah she can continually attack she manages her strike zone really well with her movement i just think you know she's got pretty um unique strokes they're not classic strokes um she's got a pretty western grip but she's able to manage that with her movement you know typically you get the ball out wide on somebody's western grip and you can force them into defense pretty quickly and she's so great moving out there that she can keep the ball right where she wants to hit it without much problems. And even when she does, she's great coming to the continental grip and working out of that. You saw that um, in the final being brought forward, the short slice being able to switch to the continental grip and still do some damage or to gain an advantage. So that's hugely underrated for players using continental grip in emergency situations. So if you and I were playing each other and let's say we were going ad court to ad court, but I was the stronger player, I had a better backhand cross court and inside out forehand. I really don't need to be changing directions. If I just stay in that pattern over the course of two, three sets, I'm going to end up winning that match. But what's your best advice or what should you do if you are the lesser player in that exchange? So 
you have a, you're my opponent. You are better from the ad court. You're pounding me to my ad court. How do I get out of that situation or improve my chances and mitigate that strength of yours? Yeah, that's tough because the backhand cross court is so fundamental. It's safely more fundamental than the backhand line, but you have to be able to break that pattern and taking the ball up the line with margin just can reset the rally. Even if the player decides they want to hit their forehand back down the line, your backhand cross is now giving them a backhand on the run. So it is something that you have to do. The difficulty comes when the quality of that backhand cross is so high that it forces you into errors and it forces you into mistakes. And I think that's where um, just the backhand, a, a solid, solid backhand cross is so fundamentally important for a player um, because the down the line is so difficult, especially if it's deep and hard. Obviously, this is the lone major that is on clay. Not just Novak or Iga, but any highlights or matches that you got to watch. How do the tactics change because of the surface? I think this movement is a little bit trickier trying to find your footing. Players like to play a little bit further back, so they have more time to adjust to those positional changes and movement changes, which brings the drop shot into play, which is always interesting and fun to watch on clay courts. But you know, court positioning is going to dictate how aggressive you can be. I always think, think it's fascinating on watching players like Alcaraz who have this massive weapon on the forehand side and he'll move in, he'll disguise like that bomb is coming and then he'll just change the grip and hit it as a drop shot. I think a lot of players that see those epic drop shots, they go out and look to emulate them with a winner. And really a lot of times, I mean, he knows when he's hit that, if it's going to be a winner, he doesn't have to close the net. But a lot of times he'll hit a good one that won't be a winner and he'll move forward and his speed to approach the net will take away the defending player's options. So it's almost always better to think of the drop shot as an approach shot. Just put your opponent in a positional disadvantage, then you're on the net. They have to get there. They have to lift it up and pass or lob you from there, which is really tough. What do you think you should do if you're the person receiving the drop shot? So I'm playing you. You hit a nice drop shot. We'll assume that you follow your own advice and and come to the net and you put yourself in a good spot. I'm running up. I'm sliding into the ball. It's likely below the net. What is my best play in that difficult situation? Well, I think you've got to look at how fast they're closing, how much space you have to get the ball past them with an angle, or do you have to sort of push the ball back deep behind them? But in that situation, it's often not best to look for the winning shot Immediately, it's often best to look for a a shot that's going to put them in a difficult position as well, like putting it at their feet um, or putting it behind their backhand as a almost a counter and looking for a follow-up volley. You see that a lot of times when players are stretched out, they're sliding in. The player is coming forward who's hit the drop shot is going to take away the angle and the player that's just getting that drop shot pushes it deep down the line and the drop shot player has to play a defensive ball and it's knocked off by the net player. But I think you can sort of panic sometimes when you're up there and look to hit away from the player immediately. And sometimes putting them in more trouble is a better option. One thing I used to think about was I would just always, you know, I'm always looking for a reason to hit a slice lob anyway. But if I was in that situation, I would just always go high to the backhand side, not necessarily to hit a winner or get it over their head. But my thought was just if I can hit it five feet behind the service line, now that person's hitting a fadeaway high backhand volley. I'm at the net, so I'm covering some ground. And so I'm guessing they feel some pressure to finish that point, especially because one shot ago, they were in a huge position of strength. So I would just kind of come up, lob to the backhand side, compete, be ready for the next ball and say, hey, if you want to win this point, you're going to have to hit a fadeaway high backhand volley winner. What are your thoughts on on using that lob in that situation? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's if you know they're closing really hard and you're running out of options to keep the ball on the ground, then you have to go up. And you have to go up on the weak side, which, like you said, is the left shoulder for a righty to make them hit the high backhand. Um, but, yeah, a lot of times, when, the more experience you have in tennis, the more you realize it's less about hitting an amazing shot and more about putting your opponent in a position that makes it very hard for them to attack um, and make them make a decision. Do they have to you know, defend or are they going to take more risk and maybe miss it? But, you know, when you're at the net, you're in such a good position to take away so many of the big targets, provided that you can volley, which is always – it comes back to any of these strategies where you want to come forward, you want to put pressure on, you, you have to volley. You need to work on your volleys. If you can't do that, some of these things fall through. Your transition game makes it tough because you've got to hit a winner from the midcourt. So many players find that they'll come up, I'm setting up the point so well and I'm just missing all the midcourt balls. Well, you're trying to hit a winner every time you get that midcourt ball. Where It's an approach shot volume play you're going to come in 30 times you get past you know eight times max the rest of the time you know it's either going to be a, a missed passing attempt or an easy volley so it's a numbers game and i think players who look to finish all the time from the midcourt are at a disadvantage you mentioned earlier the movement aspect on clay and we all know depending on your club or wherever you go the temperature that that clay can be super dry and slippery or it can be very wet and muddy and slow I know I used to always perform better on a faster clay court because my serve got through the court and, and I could come in a little more. What is your advice on, on how to move on that clay, you know, with those differing, different conditions? It's judging the slide. That's the, the hardest thing is probably a lot harder for amateurs than it is the pros who get a nice consistent slide and mastering the slide when to, when you, to start the slide, when to finish, you don't want to be finishing too long after the shot because then you're, recovery is compromised um, or you don't want to finish too early because then you're, you're stretching. So I think all of that, you know, is getting a feel for, you have to have a, a quite a bit of experience. I think that's why some of these European players have just played on so much different types of clay that they just understand their slide better than, you know, players that haven't had that experience. So it's tough. I know you're an Aussie, so you probably didn't grow up on clay and now you're in Southern California and that's, that's hardcore city, but what is your best advice or technical tips for how to slide more efficiently on clay? I mean, I think you got to really trust your slide and you have to practice it. A great way to, to learn how to slide is to run suicides and slide into them, whether that's even on a hard court. Um, but these standout athletes learn to do that both ways. And that's the thing that I'm always in awe of is the players that can slide on both legs because usually you have one leg that is far more dominant than the other leg, but you'll see um, players at the top of the game be able to slide equally well on both. They don't have a crutch. And usually you are it's much easier to slide out to your forehand. You use your right leg. Typically, that's the side a player is very strong on. So for me, I was strong sliding out in my right leg. I was not strong at all sliding to my left, which meant that as I was on the run in the ad side, if I wanted to slide, I would turn that into a slice backhand, which, as you know, ends up being much more defensive. Whereas if you can turn that into a sliding uh, left leg shot, you can hit an open stance backhand. So I think um, running suicides, learning to slide that way is a good way to do it. There are also a couple of little um, you know, agility drills that you've got to build up. But it's tough, but you have to have confidence. If you don't have confidence in it, you, you're not going to do it. Last question here about clay court tactics, something I saw a lot, and it happens in general, but I think it happens more on clay, is opponents going behind people for winners and wrong footing them. So 
what is the right time when, when you're playing, how do you know when the right play might be to go open court versus trying to wrong foot them and, and hit a winner behind your opponent? Yeah, I mean, it depends on obviously how fast the player is. Typically, the players that are a little bit faster are easy to wrong foot because they have a really explosive first step. Um, but you know, on clay courts, you're typically going to start the point a little wider, get them off the court to start because footing is is much harder to get um, to play defense, and then going behind them is an option if they drop the ball a little bit short. But you know, I think you, it's more of a feel of when to go behind a player and when not to. Um, I like to sort of think about any time the player is sort of close to the center, close to, to I'd say between the center and C, I'm going to go to the backhand side. Um, and then if the court is wide open, if they're in D, deep in D, uh, then I'm going to hit the open court. And that way I can sort of plan my targets ahead of time. I don't have to sort of make a random guess each time. But typically you're going to catch somebody in behind them if they take a double crossover step. So when players are so out of position that they have to take a crossover step and then another giant crossover step to gain momentum, you go behind them. It's very hard to turn their hips, which is why coaches teach players to take a cross step into a side shuffle before they decide to go to the open court or come back because it neutralizes the hips, makes them able to cover both ways. So that's all great, but you first have to get the person off the court you know, that's really where you're going to have them commit to covering open court. I think we also come full circle here to what you said earlier about court position, because I know one thing I would try to do if I wanted to wrong foot someone was I would make sure I got up to the ball quickly. And so they would kind of see me, they would feel rushed. And so now they don't have time to maybe take a shuffle and a split step. They might just take off running to the open court. So just by me getting up there quickly, it's like that alarm went off for them. And they thought, man, I, I better cheat over there and, and really hustle to get to that next ball. Yeah, like, and that plays in with disguise as well. As you come up to the to the ball quickly and you you just you prepare aggressively, you have the player believing that they, you go in open court. Um, then it also brings the drop shot into play on clay if you can do those things as well. We're gonna wrap up with Instagram questions, and and like I told you before the show, I mean, I posted this story. What it's now like four hours before we've recorded. And got so many questions. People love you. Um, and by the way, I want to thank everyone who always takes the time to send a question. They're great. A lot of times they're things I had never thought of. And I know it's something you guys are interested in as, as the amateur players. So thanks so much for that. Uh, this first person, they wanted to know if you're at home and you're watching the French or any pro tournament, how should a player observe that tennis so they can learn and improve their own game? So I think probably look at Core positioning, I would say that's one of the most important things. You're going to notice a lot on where players are standing when they're hitting cross court. They're not in the center of the court. Where players are typically standing when they approach, they'll follow their approach towards the net. You'll see players who are getting pushed back. Their opponent is typically moving forward. So, you know, it has an inverse relationship to one player over another in, in terms of core positioning. So, if you are further back, further back behind the baseline you are, the more you are going to be playing defense. And the closer you are to the net, the more you're going to be playing offense. So you can look for those things. Um, also look to uh, look at the start of the point. Watch players that make more first serves than others are going to do better. Um, players that are able to attack second serves more than others are going to do better. So that's also important. I think players can overlook the start of the point and look to the rally. And they sort of miss some of the most important parts of tennis that happen at the start. One thing I also 
do, it's probably because of golf. When I'm watching a golf tournament, I do this so I feel better about my own game or manage my own expectations, but I really pay attention to the bad shots. So a lot of times, like I'll be watching maybe with a player, I'll send them some clips and I'll go, oh, okay, there's Ziga double faulting. And then, you know, Coco came back and missed her plus one and it's just miss, miss, miss. And I'm I'm always kind of thinking, man, if if these players can hit poor shots and miss balls, then it's really not that abnormal that I'm doing that or that my player is doing that. And just having like realistic expectations can keep you a little happier and a little more sane. Yeah, I think that's actually probably the best way to think about that is is if you're if somebody who's new to tennis, watching tennis, just look at every time it's an error. It's it's huge. So many times. Very rarely is it winners. So as an amateur, you don't want to be playing to winners. You want to be playing to minimize your errors and force them out of your opponent. This next follower, they noticed how windy it was on the stadium courts. They wanted to know how you should adjust tactically and or technically if you're playing in extremely windy conditions. Pretty severe wind. I mean, you definitely want to know where the wind is coming from. You know, that makes a big difference. A north to south wind or an east to west wind, you're going to have to adjust your shots accordingly. You're also going to have to use more spin and bigger targets. And your footwork's going to have to be better because the ball's not always going to be sitting in your strike zone. Uh, sometimes you'll either even have to adjust your ball toss. You might have a very high ball toss and you might have to bring that down, which is one of the disadvantages. But I definitely think big targets, lots more spin, um, you know, be willing to move more to get the ball that you want. Um, but also there are some pretty good tactics you can use uh, in the wind. So if you are facing, you got a, a heavy uh, headwind coming at you, so the wind is in your face. One of the best things you can do is approach into that wind. You can keep the ball down and approach into the wind, knowing that it almost takes the lob away. If the player hits too high, the wind will take that lob over your head. It also makes the passing shots a lot uh, harder because it's hard to get that ball up and down in time with the wind at your back. So it, I definitely always preferred to play into the wind than with the wind at my back because you've, you have to hit a little bit less hard. You have to use more spin when the wind's at your back, but it's also easier to overhit. What about a drop shot into the wind? Great one. Drop shot approach into the wind. Anything where the ball is below the net and that player lifts it too high and the wind can take it. So that's a really good one using the, using a low flight into a headwind. This is, this is why I love doing the podcast because I love hearing these different views or opinions because I always wanted to be downwind. I felt like if I had the wind behind me, I could just hit super heavy I would aim a little bit shorter knowing the wind would push my ball deep. But then I felt like once it landed, it was just this bowling ball for them to play against. And I was going to get short balls. My serve had a ton on it. My kick serve had a ton on it. And so I just felt like I had so much offense playing down when it's interesting that you kind of like the opposite. Oh, yeah. Especially if you're serving well out from with a, with a tailwind, it feels like you're serving huge. You can you know hit the ball bigger. But the ball has got to be at a contact height that you like, right? I mean, that's easy on the serve. You're putting it where you want. But if I've got the tailwind and you're hitting to me and you're slicing that ball down at my socks, it's very hard to be aggressive um, bringing the ball up and down with a, with a, a tailwind. So Plus, then when I get to net, you can be very aggressive with a lob knowing that it's hard to hit out. So it's, I remember doing that at IMG Academy, actually. It was um, something that stood out. We had a, a savage... Um, north and south wind and we were doing approaching um, into the wind and it was so successful and we all knew it was happening and it was still very difficult to do anything with it because of the the strength of the wind that was a standout wind day but it always stuck in my mind and it was something that I, I used when I could in the future 
The next follower was watching the Coco versus Iga match, and they said that there were a lot of high loopier balls hit to the backhand, and then people hitting their backhand high and loopy back. What? What? Is, why would someone be trying that tactic in a pro match? And then what can an amateur player learn from that tactic as well? Well, it gets the ball out of the net, number one. And the ball that's higher is typically going to travel further, so it has a better chance of going deeper. And then the ball is going to bounce up out of the strike zone. So if players are not willing to take the risk or they're not able to take the ball on the rise, then getting that higher loopier ball up on the weak side out of the strike zone is a great option because it makes them continually hit from a compromised position. And the other benefit to that too is that if you're the type of player who is defending more backhands and looking to be more aggressive with the forehand, it's easier to run around those high balls. You get more time, you can see it coming, you can start to position yourself more aggressively in the ad side and look, look for forehands. But, you know, you can have a lot of contrast in terms of your backhand, your forehand, if you decide that your backhand is just going to go high and deep cross. It makes it very hard for your opponents to take any of those down the line. So the pattern of play becomes very predictably ad court, ad court. Same in doubles. You know, you play if three, five, four doubles leagues. You see that a lot. High cross. They just keep it away from the net player. Try and trap the other player's backhand. And, and it makes it easy for you to get a forehand. And last question, this person wanted to know for the 4-adult, what is the best tactic or pattern that they could use on a clay court? Push the player back into the backhand side as deep as possible. Uh, the, the further back they get pushed, the less they can hurt you, the more compromised their core positioning, the more it's tempting for them to come back and cover the open court if anything is short. But in terms of rally pattern stuff, high and deep to the backhand, like we were just talking about, or heavy and deep to the backhand, um, just starve the strength and feed the weakness as in terms of 4-0. All right. Well, look, again, thanks for coming on. I love having you as this regular contributor after the slams. Uh, informational as always, learned a ton. I know people out there did as well. Um, so again, hopefully I'll see you in a month. We'll be talking about Wimbledon, but thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, mate. Good to talk to you. We'll do it again soon. All right. I want to thank Joel for coming on again. I love having him on the show. He's so knowledgeable and always has a few gems for us. On two separate occasions, he stressed court positioning. And that concept is really important if you want to level up your game. So if you hit a weak shot, of course, it's okay. You might want to back up and give up some ground. But if you've hit a forcing deep shot, especially in a corner, make sure you take a small step forward in anticipation of the short ball. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved in tennis without even hitting a ball.